Um, so, but his wife, he says, is a master organizer. She's got everything that she's got all laid out just the way that she needs it, just the way that she wants it. <clears throat> and all, all of that, uh, all of her organizational skills was applied to her closet. And uh, then she started reading a new book. She started reading a book called, oh man, I don't even remember the name of it. I'm going to have to look it up just to tell you because I don't want to mess it up. But it was a, a book about how to be even more hyper-organized than you already are. Uh, it was a book called The Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing. Yeah. So the premise of the book is that it's this life-changing organizational skill that this this author was going to teach you according to the Japanese art of decluttering, whatever that means. <laughs> and so <clears throat> he walks into her closet and she, see, and she has taken out everything of her closet, all of her stuff, and put it all in the middle of the floor. And the, the book says that in order to hyper-organize your life according to this, this, this mantra... You have to go through all of your stuff, and you have to pick up things one by one, and you have to say, does this spark joy in me? And if it does, you keep it. If it doesn't, you give it away. And that was the idea of decluttering your life, according to this, this uh, principle. And so, he, he, but Kyle was amazed, at, because his strength is not in organization. <laughs> and I think I, I really empathize with him <laughs> in that in that mindset. Uh, and so he didn't understand why she hard, had to t- take her already organized, super organized closet and declutter, declutter it even more. And then she uh, gently warned him that he should be careful because his closet was next. <laughs> you know, my wife has done that to me too. Um, I can talk about her because she's not in the room. Um, just don't tell her I said it. But she does that to me, too. She'll occasionally go through our house to organize, and uh, I, always, I always say, that's great to get rid of all your stuff. But I like all my stuff, and I need it. I don't care that if I haven't seen it for three years. I need that thing. <clears throat> and uh, then she gives it away anyway. And it doesn't, I'm, I swear it doesn't make me angry. Whew. But in this illustration about decluttering, the idea that we want to talk about today is how often we let, uh, how often we live with emotions like anger and resentment when instead they should be purged, when we should be getting rid of that stuff out of our life. The idea that you put all of your stuff in one pile in the middle of the room and then look at it and say, does this spark joy in my life? Or does it not? We can do that on an emotional level. Are we taking all of the stuff that we have inside of ourselves, in our minds, that's affecting our daily lives, can we take all of that stuff and put it in a pile? And can we look at something and say, does this spark joy? Does this glorify God? Does this... There's so many questions that we can ask about all this different stuff. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't bring us joy, or if it doesn't honor God, why do we hang on to it? And so that's what we're going to talk about today as we kind of go through some, some points about how to release anger and how to not hold on to, to emotions like anger and resentment. How can we clean out our emotional closet? We're going to look at a few different pieces of Scripture. We're going to be in the book of Acts, 2 Timothy, and Colossians. 
And so the first thing that we're going to read is Acts chapter 7. So if you got your Bibles, we'll turn to Acts chapter 7 together. We're going to read uh, through a little bit of scripture here. Acts chapter 7. It's a great little story, amazing story, uh, about a man who you may have heard of before. We're going to start in verse 54. If you want to follow along with me, it says this. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. What you, the precursor to this verse is a man named Stephen. Stephen was preaching. You see, he was on, uh, he, he was on trial and <clears throat> he began preaching while he was there. And it says that the, the people that were listening to him were cut to the quick. What that, if your version may say something a little bit different, but what that cut to the heart maybe is what your version says. But um, what that basically means is that the people who were listening to him, they were convicted by what he was saying. It really made sense to them in their minds what he was saying, and they thought, oh, you're stepping on my toes now. Have you ever been in that type of a message? Have you been listening to a sermon before where preacher starts stepping on toes? Ooh. <laughs> Those are the kind of sermons that we typically like to avoid, right? <laughs> so when we feel convicted, it's, it's harder. Verse 55, it goes on, But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. You see, that's an interesting response. <laughs> Here Stephen was preaching about what God had laid on his heart to tell these, these people that were listening. They were convicted by it. And then he looks up to heaven and he sees Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. And it says they covered their ears, yelled, and ran at him. <laughs> I have uh, preached a couple of times in my life. But I have yet to preach a sermon where people cover their ears, yell, and then bum rush me. <laughs> Uh, that would be... Oh, look, Corey's running away. Yeah, with his ears covered. That's great. I'll take running away, but running at me is scary. <laughs> but could you imagine the scene as Stephen was standing there, as he was preaching, as he was telling all of this stuff that was laid on his heart by the Holy Spirit, so much so that everybody in the audience was so convicted, and here he stands saying, I have seen Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. And for their conviction and their anger to overcome them so much that they start rushing him. Oof. What a scene that must have been. In verse 58 it says, When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who we'll see later. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Which is the Bible way of saying that he, he died. What an amazing story. And if you don't know a lot about Stephen, I encourage you to read the verses before this section. Because it's a powerful, powerful message. But you see, the first point that we have, and it's up here on the screen, when we start talking about how to get rid of anger and how we can let our feelings of resentment go, we must release our feelings of anger, bitterness, and rage over to God. 
You see, what was happening here with Stephen, he had every right to be upset. (laughs) He had every right to be bitter about what was happening in this moment. All he was trying to do was talk about what God had laid on his heart. And the people had such this negative reaction to it. But I love this explanation of this point. Grace is only grace if it goes both ways. Receiving it from God but refusing to give it to others is not an option. Grace is only grace if it goes both ways. In his book, there's an illustration that Kyle Eidelman uses, uh, and he talks about these statistics to reinforce that the belief that anger isn't just spiritually harmful, but it's physically harmful as well. I believe it was a, a study at the University of Michigan. They studied, uh, I think, women um, who had held on to some, some sort of feeling of anger from their past. They followed these people for 18 years. Something bad happened to them. And then the study followed them for 18 years, tracking their health as they had held on to this bitterness. They had a control group that, hadn't, that didn't, wasn't affected. And then they followed these women. I think it was women. There might have been men. But they followed these people all through these years, tracking their health as they went. By the end of the study, something like a third of the people who had held on to this anger for so long had died during the study. That's amazing to me. That if we have something that affects us so much, that we have so much anger in our hearts and in our lives, and we hold on to it for so long, it can literally start to kill us. That was amazing to me when I read that. (laughs) You know, when I... I put up on Facebook the other day that we were going to be talking about anger today. And a friend of mine from work uh, made a, a kind of an interesting comment. She said that uh, she's just, she, whenever she gets angry, she just reminds herself of Elsa from Frozen. She just lets it go. Man, if I can get to that point, that, I'm, I'm going to be good. <laughs> but sometimes we can't. Sometimes the hurt is too deep. And the people that were in this study are a good example of that. You see, those who had let it go, like Elsa, (laughs) their health tracked normally as they aged. But these people that just held on to it and held on to it for so many years, for so long, eventually adversely affected their health so much that some of them died during the study. You know, Jesus and Stephen alike didn't look at their murders in the eye and say, I forgive you. They looked up to heaven and said, God, forgive them. So maybe if we've struggled to forgive, that's a good place to start. When we start talking about releasing our anger, maybe a good place to start is looking at forgiveness, which can be tough. We're going to talk about forgiveness in just a minute. But when we think about releasing those feelings of anger and bitterness and rage, we don't have to look any further than the examples that we have in Jesus 
and in Stephen. Now, Stephen obviously is not Jesus. But Stephen leaves us a good example of what a man born a human <laughs> can, can do. The type of release that we as, as a human can do. When Stephen was being killed and he said to God, Lord, don't hold this against them. Lord, forgive them. That's an amazing thing. And so when we talk about releasing that anger, we, we also have to talk about the second point, which is we must release the person who hurt us over to God. And we're going to talk about forgiveness as a part of this point here in just a minute. But we must release the person who hurt us over to God. If you've got your Bibles still with you, turn to 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, there's a really interesting moment where Paul... Oh, now here's where Paul comes back in, right? So in the story of Stephen, all these people are, are so angry, they're stoning him to death. And it says that they're laying their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. If you don't know, or if you haven't heard the story, that young man named Saul eventually had a literal coming to Jesus meeting <laughs> with Jesus and changed his whole perspective on life, changed his name even to Paul. And the majority of the New Testament is written by him. Letters to churches and church leaders uh, about how we... Uh, should operate as Christians. And so this is one of those letters where Paul was writing to Timothy, a leader in the church in Ephesus, which is kind of modern-day Turkey. And so Paul was writing this letter to Timothy, and in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, uh, Paul says this, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my, excuse me, at my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear that I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, leader in the church of Ephesus. And he says some interesting things. He talks about this man named Alexander the coppersmith. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't typically refer to my friends by their profession. So I have to assume that Alexander the coppersmith and Paul were not very close. <laughs> You know what I mean? I, I, you probably don't do that with your friends either. I don't say Zach the insurance salesman when I talk about my best friend Zach. <laughs> but if you do need insurance, I know a guy. Uh, <laughs> his name is Zach. Uh, he's a great guy. Lives in Chandler. He's got his own office now. He's big time. But so I have to imagine that, right, Paul and Alexander probably weren't that close. <clears throat> but this further illustrates the point that there's some, there's some interesting things that we need to know. That Number one, they probably weren't close, but that's okay. Paul does this thing where he doesn't call out whatever happened between them. 
He doesn't dwell on it. That was one of the first things that I noticed. He just says that Alexander the coppersmith did me wrong. Probably avoid him. <laughs> but he doesn't gossip about what happened. He doesn't tell this really long, drawn-out story about how Alexander did him wrong and all this other stuff. No, he just says, look, something happened between us. Let's just move on. And so in that moment, we see an example of what it means for somebody to just release that issue back to God. You see, when somebody does us wrong, our first inclination is to go to somebody that we really know and trust and love and, will know, and know that will listen to us and just retell the whole story. I know I do that all the time <laughs> to my fault. As soon as I feel wronged by somebody... I, well, I'm either texting my wife or I'm grabbing a friend at work and I'm like, you will never believe what just happened. <laughs> but this is a good example that Paul sets for us in that, hey, this thing happens, but I let it go. I, Elsa did. I gave it to God. God is standing with us and offers us a grace that is not only greater than anything we have done, but greater than anything that has been done to us. God's grace is greater than what has been done to us. There's a great story that uh, Kyle in his book writes about. Uh, is the story of a little girl named Ruby Bridges. Uh, I, to my shame, had never heard the story of Ruby Bridges but I, did some, I, I read this illustration and did some looking up about the story. It's a powerful story. It's back in the 1960s when schools were being integrated again. I, again. <laughs> when they were being integrated. <laughs> Ruby Bridges was set to be one of the students, one of the black students that was going to go to a white school. In this area that she lived, there were going to be several students that were going to uh, be integrated to white schools. Now, Here's the thing. Ruby Bridges was six years old. She's a kindergartner. She was the only black student set to go to this all-white school. She was alone. A six-year-old. A kindergartner. Expected to take the weight of segregation on her whole shoulders. Tiny shoulders. Now, her story shines as a powerful example about how we should act toward those who are doing us wrong. So the story goes that at the, the day came where she was going to start going to this white school. And so you'll have to imagine this little, this little black girl walking into this all-white school. There are people all lined up along the sidewalk going up to the school protesting. Segregation. Desegregation, sorry. They're just protesting and yelling all of this stuff at her. And then her teacher noticed that as she was walking up to the school, she was saying something. She was just saying something quietly to herself. And after they got back into the school, the teacher asked her, What what was it that you were saying? What were you what were you trying to tell them? Nobody could hear you over the yelling. And she was like, oh, I, w I wasn't trying to tell anybody anything. 
I was praying for those people. You see, her parents and her pastor had always told her that you have to pray for your enemies. Her parents couldn't read. And so little Ruby Bridges was going to school to have a better life than her parents had had. That's all she was trying to do, was just trying to have a better life. But somewhere along the line, her parents, along with her pastor, had instilled in her this idea that people in this life will do you wrong. But those are the people that we need to pray for the most. Can you imagine this little, little girl having to bear the weight of such in-your-face racism and yelling and protesting? And here she was, a shining example of how we need to pray and forgive those who have hurt us. She prayed for her enemies. Now, there's four ways that we can apply this point to our lives. And if you've got your kind of outline in there, you'll see these uh, four ways that we can apply this, this point, this giving it back to God to our lives. The first thing is that we need to acknowledge our hurt. We need to acknowledge our hurt. You see, we can't bottle it up. I've talked to counselors before, and I've talked to people who are knowledgeable in the field of psychology, and, and I think that it's probably, well, I hope that it would be common knowledge, that if something is bothering us emotionally, one of the worst things that we can do is bottle it up and keep it to ourselves or not acknowledge that we've been hurt. Just go along our lives, just pretending everything's fine. But if we're hurt, the first thing we need to do is acknowledge that. The first thing that we need to do is say, that hurt me. Acknowledging our hurt is important. The second thing is we need to release our, right, our rights to that hurt and to that event that, that hurt us. I think sometimes people confuse forgiveness. You see, forgiveness isn't waiting for something bad, equally bad, to happen to the person that hurt us. Right? <laughs> that could be something that, eas- that we easily do. I know that I've done this in my own life. When I felt hurt by somebody, when I felt offended by somebody, when I felt like they have done me wrong, One of my first human inclinations is to wait for them to also get something bad happen to them. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah, now you know how I feel. (laughs) But that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is releasing it back to God. Forgiveness is allowing that hurt and and betrayal or whatever, whatever that is that has caused you harm, letting it go. So we acknowledge our hurt, we release our rights, and then thirdly, we pray for our enemies. We pray for our enemies. Just like we read in 2 Timothy where Paul felt betrayed by this coppersmith for whatever reason, 
Paul made it a point to say that we need to pray for the people that are around us. When Stephen was being literally killed for what he had just told these people that God had laid on his heart, he didn't look at them and say, man, I hope all of these guys didn't, don't get up in heaven. <laughs> I mean, what would the point of that have been? If he was being killed for what he had just preached to them, and then as he was being killed said, man, I, you know I, know, I know I just said all this stuff, guys, but man, I really hope you guys end up in hell. I mean, just re- real great vindication. <laughs> no, instead, Stephen let us, left us an example of what it means to pray for the people who are causing you harm, literally causing you harm. And of course, I think of the story about Ruby. Little Ruby, man. I didn't find any pictures of Ruby Bridges, probably because I didn't search hard enough, but I, <laughs> I couldn't help but superimpose the face of Little Miracle in the story. If you've never seen Little Miracle smile, I mean, it's like her whole face. Her smile is just all, all her face. <laughs> I mean, if I think she just had a birthday and turned seven. <laughs> I can't imagine a little girl like that having to endure so much. But what an example to pray for the people that are causing you harm. Acknowledge our hurt, release our rights, pray for our enemies, and then last, fourthly, lean on the Lord. You see, a lot of times in life, this humanness that we are that we have this failed body this sinful world can be a lot can be heavy and i think there's a lot of times in life where we really need strength that goes beyond ourselves and if we try to do it by ourselves there's a lot of times where we won't make it And so it's important for us to remember to lean on God's strength, to lean on God's power and grace. Acknowledge our hurt, release our rights, pray for our enemies, and lean on the Lord. That's supernatural strength. The third point that we want to talk about today And we're going to be in Colossians. So if you'll flip to Colossians chapter 1. The third point we want to talk about today is reconciliation may not always be possible or appropriate, but it can reflect God's grace and forgiveness toward us. It's a long point, but I like it. Reconciliation may not always be possible or appropriate. And I think that one, this point's probably the toughest one for me. As a, I live my life sort of, maybe, maybe to my own fault, but I live my life as a people pleaser. <laughs> when anybody is, I, I, I don't like it when people aren't my friends. That, that bothers me. <clears throat> maybe I should just let that go too. <laughs> but, so this, the idea that reconciliation may not always be possible, that's tough for me. 
Because I always want people to be happy, and I always want people to be my friend. But I, I also understand at some level that sometimes that's just not possible. But, but, the great thing about God's grace is that it can go beyond what we think we need in our hearts and what we need in our lives. The Bible says we're to forgive as God forgave us. Which is an amazing point, by the way. It's an amazing little subtext to this, this overall point. I've said this before, and I don't mind saying it again. If we as Christians, if we are claiming to be Christ followers, if we claim to live this life that God has called us to, and yet we do not know how to forgive, we're not doing it right. Let me say that one more time. If we as Christians, if we claim to follow Christ, and yet we don't know how to forgive, or we don't practice forgiveness, then we're not doing it right. Because each and every one of us that claims to live for Christ, that claims to be a Christian, that claims Christ as our Lord and Savior, we were once forgiven. And so if we're not practicing that in our own lives with the people around us, no matter how much they have hurt us, we're not doing it right. When God forgave us, He didn't say, you know what, I, I, I forgive you, but yeah, we're not going to be able to have a relationship. Sorry. Uh, I, I, I want your sins to go away, uh, but oh, yeah, we're, we just can't hang out. We can't... This, us can't be a thing. Sorry. I'm sorry. It's not you. It's me. If God did the uh, it's not you, it's me thing, that'd be awful. God's forgiveness of us leads him to, uh, leads to him reconciling with us despite our sin. In his book, there's another illustration that Eidelman shares a story of uh, about forgiveness and reconciliation that resulted after a couple lost their son in a car accident. You see, the accident was caused by a drunk driver. I think we probably have all heard stories of stories like this where life doesn't make sense. Where something happens around us, maybe to our loved ones or to our friends, that isn't fair. A son or a daughter killed by a drunk driver or somebody distractedly driving. Or cancer. Or sickness. Or natural disasters. or <laughs> I mean, the list can go on and on. But the reality of where we are is that we live in a broken world. And there's only one way to fix it. And that's through grace and Jesus. How can a parent who lost a child to somebody who was I mean, let's just call it what it is, being stupid. 
how can they exhibit forgiveness and reconciliation after so much was taken? Let's look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 19, which is where we're going to start. For it is with the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and, and, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. You see, Paul, again, writing to the church in Colossus, he says here in this, in this section of verses that we once were alienated from what God has for us. And yet through the message of reconciliation that Jesus died on the cross for us, we now know what true forgiveness and reconciliation really means. So how can we be open to what God wants us to do through our past hurts? It's by understanding the example that Jesus left for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That His sacrifice took away our sin and showed us the ultimate picture of what forgiveness means. Total reconciliation requires both forgiveness from the offended and repentance from the offender. Total reconciliation requires both forgiveness from the offended and repentance from the offender. In this human life, sometimes that's difficult because we're human. But this is an example of what Jesus did for us. We have brokenness in ourselves. Sin breaks us. Sin separates us from God. And the only way for that sin to be eradicated, the only way for that sin to be erased was for a sacrifice to be made on our behalf. And that was Jesus. Jesus did that. So Jesus offers us forgiveness for the debt of our sin. But true reconciliation only comes when we accept that forgiveness and turn away from that which has caused it in the first place. True rec- Let me say that one more time. True reconciliation only comes when we accept the forgiveness that Jesus gave us in the cross. And the Bible word that we use all the time, repent, all that simply means is turning away from, doing a 180 and going the other direction. That's the, 
that is the moment that true reconciliation happens. Forgiveness and repentance. And again, because we're human, sometimes that's hard for us to do with those among us. The people that we work with, maybe our friends. I think we can all maybe pick out a time in our lives where we have felt betrayed, where we have felt left behind. Paul told a, told a great story when he was writing to Timothy that when he was on trial, nobody showed up for him. Did you catch that when he was talking to Timothy? He was on trial and nobody showed up. He had no friends come to his trial. None of the apostles came. None of the church leaders that he writes all of these letters to, nobody came. He was alone with God in that moment. But he didn't whine or bicker about it. He let it go, gave it back to God. And he said, God will lead me through all of these trials, which he will do for us. But the way that we reconcile everything that is broken in our lives, every hurt, every betrayal, every bitterness, is by taking the forgiveness that Jesus offers us, turning and going the other way, and repenting from the thing that breaks us, the thing that keeps us in chains. Whatever that is, if it's anger or bitterness, run away from it. If it's that stuff that gets into your mind and affects your marriage, run away from it. If it's whatever it is, let it go and give it to God. Run away from it. And know that you can't do it alone. You have to do it with God. Otherwise it won't work. Is there an enemy that you need to forgive, to pray for, to do good to, to be reconciled with? Who is it? What do you need to do? We can do this. Grace is greater than our hurt. Grace is greater than our hurt. I want us to take a moment before we wrap up today. And if you want to write it down, you can write it down. If you want to just think about it, you can think about it. If you want to type it in a text message, it doesn't matter. But I want us to take all a moment and just silently reflect about somebody who is in our lives that has done us wrong. If you've got somebody like that in your heart and in your life, let's pray for them today. Let's do it today. What's the wait? So I'm going to take us a moment. I'm going to take a moment for us to think about who that person might be in your life and in my life. And then we'll wrap up in prayer this morning as we finish today. Let's think this morning. Let's go to God and think about who that could be today for us.
Father, when we feel hurt and when we feel betrayed and when we feel let down, one of the hardest things for us to do sometimes is to let it go, to give it to you, to release that bitterness. God, I know I do, and I hope that those around us today have picked a name of somebody that at some point in our lives has done us wrong. Maybe it's been years ago, but we never really let it go. It's just been festering in the back of our minds until just this moment. We remember it again. God, we pray for that person. We pray for that person to know you, to know your grace. Father, we pray a blessing on that person. God, we ask that your spirit would move in their heart and in their life in a powerful way. God, we don't need vindication because that's not forgiveness. We simply ask that you would take our hurt away. And in doing so, that the life of that person that we're thinking of would be moved closer to you. God, thank you for this message in a world that is so full of hate and bitterness and anger. It is so nice to know, so refreshing to hear that you offer us something that is greater than our bitterness, that you offer us a way out of our anger. Because holding on to that anger is destroying us from the inside out. So God, as we come to you today, as we lay all of this down at the cross and at your feet, we just ask that you would guide us to you. Help us to release it. Show us what forgiveness looks like in our specific situation. Bless that person that we have prayed for today. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for the example of forgiveness and reconciliation that he gave us in the cross. And God, as we continue on this week, as we go back to work, or whatever it is that we have going on this week, guide us in everything that we do. Move your spirit around us so that we'll know that you're with us. God, we love you. We ask for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today, if you've got this bitterness or this anger that you've been holding on to for too long, we'll invite you to come up. We'll invite you to pray or just talk. If you feel led to do so, please do it. We're going to stand. We're going to sing this song together. Uh, and if you feel led to come forward, if you just need to talk, if you need to pray, let's do it today. Don't wait any longer. Let's stand. Let's sing.